All right. Good morning to you. Okay. Hey, if you're new, welcome to Citadel Square. My name is Steve, one of the pastors here. Uh, if you got a Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab it? And as you are turning there, I'd like to let you know that we're just one day closer to fall. Isn't that great? We're actually technically eight weeks. You know when the start of fall is? September 23rd. It's a Saturday. Put it on your calendar. I know it's not real fall in Charleston. I know. We now have two more months of summer after that. But it, it just warms my heart to know that fall is just one day closer. And we don't have to live in 148 degree heat forever. All right, that's all on that. Uh, if you got a Bible, go ahead and find Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7 is where we're going to be. Last week we looked at uh, a story where Jesus uh, gave us some objective assessments of both the ministry of John the Baptist and the generation in which both Jesus and John minister. And he compared, uh, he told us first about John, and he said, John is the fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy. It's a 400-year-old prophecy. He is the one, the forerunner of the Christ. He's the one who is to come to prepare God's people to meet the Messiah. And then Jesus gave us an illustration, <clears throat> excuse me, an illustration of children playing in the marketplace. And he compared the generation in which John and Jesus ministered to, to stubborn children, which is just hilarious to me. I love that Jesus uses illustrations like that. Uh, but the whole point of last week was Jesus blowing away the fog of what's happening in the culture so that we would understand this is what John's ministry really is. And this is what the generation really is that experiences the ministry of John and Jesus. And Luke let us know that the ministry of John and Jesus has a dividing effect. That there are some who will receive it and some who will reject it. And that's the gospel message. Well, today we're going to see something similar here in uh, really some, an idea that Luke gives for us that continues uh, really some of the last two verses that we looked at last week. If you're in Luke chapter 7, look with me at Luke 7, 34 and 35. Here's what he says. The son of man has come eating and drinking and you say, look at him a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collector and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. So the idea, what we left last week was the idea of being wise, to listen to the ministry of John and to listen to the ministry of Jesus and to respond appropriately puts you in the camp of individuals who are wise. It, Jesus lets us know that to respond to what John and Jesus are saying aligns your life with heaven's perspective because all through the ministry of John and Jesus, heaven has been validating their ministry. So you are wise if you listen to their ministry. Well, this week we're going to look at Jesus' objective um, observation of not John's ministry and not so much the generation in which they minister, but what Jesus is going to do for us here is give us another objective statement that's really directed at the heart. Jesus is going to blow away uh, sort of the subjective experiences and the objective assessments of people in this story and aim at the most important singular spiritual reality in your life. He's going to comment on perhaps the most important thing about you today in this room. And he's going to do it through a story where he uh, enters into a dinner party and he talks to a Pharisee and he talks to a sinful woman. This story, in fact, is incredibly important in Luke's gospel. It's one of the, about 30% of Luke's gospel is independent to Luke. And this is one of those stories that you don't get in any other gospel. But Luke records it for us right here because what Luke has been doing is confronting us with the reality and really the accusation against Jesus that Jesus spends time with sinners. And what Jesus is going to do here is spend time at a party with a sinner. And he's going to give us an objective assessment that will uh, disturb the assessments of people in the room and how they think about godliness, how they think about spirituality, how they think about those who are in and those who are out. And he's going to give us an objective assessment that by the time we're done here together, he's going to put us in one of two camps. So this text is an incredibly important text because this text gives us really, for anybody in the room, the freedom to walk in such a way that our past doesn't hold us anymore. Have you done some things that you don't like to tell people about? Do we all have stories 
in our lives that we're ashamed of, that we're embarrassed of, that you don't put on a resume? Well, this story treats those areas of your life in perhaps the most tender and objective and clear way up to this point in the book of Luke. All right, so let's pray, and we'll ask God for his grace as we look into his word. Father, for these few minutes, may the songs that we have sung and the things that we have spoken together as we've confessed your word in this room together, would those truths capture our attention and our affections? As we come to a passage like this, Father, I know that there's plenty of people in the room who are fearful of being exposed, who feel the tension in their life between their reputation and who they really are. And Father, I would pray just for these few minutes as we look into your word that you would close that gap and you would uh, help us leave this place with such confident assurance of your love to us in Jesus Christ. Father, that anything that is foggy in the things that I say, that your spirit would make it clear and plain to the hearts of us who are in the room, that we would take joy and encouragement from what we learn here. For those who are in this room, myself included, who maybe have not considered the truth of this passage to be accurate of the Jesus we say we put our hope in, would we gain a new appreciation for your heart towards sinners? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, Luke 7, verse 36 is where we're going to be, and we're going to go all the way to the end uh, of verse 50. Y'all there? We okay? Ready? Luke 7, 36. Here's how it starts. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. Now, you might be surprised up to this point in the story of uh, Luke's gospel. The Pharisees have been kind of the guys with the black hats, right, where the music changes and uh, shadows come on the screen as, we're, as we encounter the Pharisees. They've been Jesus' opposition in Luke chapter 6, and there's significant opposition in Jesus' ministry up to this point. We're right on the cusp of Jesus now moving out, sending out the apostles, uh, beginning to speak in parables. So there's uh, entrenched opposition to Jesus. But it's interesting that as this story opens, that Jesus is still willing to have lunch with a Pharisee. Right as we open this story for, uh, with Luke for us, you may think that the Pharisee is ready to interrogate, he's ready to evaluate, he's ready to assess, he's ready to critique, he's ready to kind of have his guns loaded, ready for Jesus to come in and to pick apart the way Jesus has been living and the things that Jesus has been saying. But what is incredibly encouraging to me is that Jesus is willing to go. Does Jesus have any problem with Pharisees? I mean, even though... The Pharisees' rejection of John and the Pharisees' rejection of Jesus will ultimately lead to his crucifixion, that Jesus has no problem eating with anybody from any background with any uh, religious persuasion. Jesus has no problem going to dinner, which is incredibly encouraging, I think, to all of us to know that Jesus is willing to step into this environment, fully knowing what he's going to experience in the conversation with this Pharisee fully knowing that, he, that all of the eyes are going to be on him and the way he thinks and acts. We've already had Jesus examined by the ways that he eats, the ways that he drinks, the ways that he doesn't fast, the ways that he doesn't fit into the pharisaical religious culture of his day. He's disruptive, but he's still willing to go and have dinner with this individual. Now, the dinner is going to be interrupted by somebody. And you, we're introduced really to the second of the three characters that we're going to see. We're, the characters in this story are very, very simple. It's Jesus, it's the Pharisee, and it's, it's this person who shows up at the dinner table. This person has a history with Jesus. I'll explain that here in a little bit. But this person follows Jesus into this dinner party, having some kind of encounter with Jesus before this point. Because where we encounter this person in the midst of this dinner party is in a vastly different place than anybody else at the dinner party. She's in an incredibly different emotional mindset than anybody else at this dinner party. And we see her here introduced in verse 37. You see how Luke introduces verse 37. You see that word behold? Luke uses that word to draw our attention to it. It's the same word that Luke uses of the story of the leper. If you remember the story of the leper, Luke gives for us his account of the leper coming to see Jesus. And he, in that account, he says, behold, a leper. 
in the city with Jesus. There's somebody here with Jesus who isn't supposed to be here with Jesus. There's somebody in the city who is only distant, who's only outside of the city, city centers, only outside of the social culture of the day. And here is this person who's now in the presence of Jesus. Well, you're meant to have the same kind of surprise in this passage here. Luke draws your attention to it. She's going to be a, somewhat of a radioactive character in the story. You'll see that in just a minute. But Luke wants you to know who this person is. He wants you to see this woman in a certain light in the beginning of the story because by the end of the story, she's going to be totally different. So in the beginning of the story, look at what it says. Behold, there's a woman of the city. You'll see in a minute that she's somewhat well-known. She's got a reputation People know who she is in the city. But she's a local. She's somebody who probably has background. Somebody who has a story. And this woman particularly is defined not as being from a certain place, not as doing a certain thing. Luke doesn't even tell you who she is. He doesn't even tell you what her background is. He doesn't tell you how she grew up. He doesn't tell you really anything about her whatsoever. She says no words in this entire story. All Luke gives you is her status. Now think about that as we go through a passage like this. Luke lets you know that she's a sinner. Now, this woman who is a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Alabaster is an imported stone from Egypt. It's an incredibly valuable one at that. And it's one that uh, is used to contain some of the most expensive perfume of the day. So as such, this woman brings something of incredibly important value into her encounter with Jesus. And Luke does something very interesting in the next verse here. It's as if Luke pulls the narrative to a grinding halt. He engages in narrative patience. Because what he does is not just kind of gloss over who this woman is, but he invites you and I through a series, a litany of verbs to describe this woman's behavior in the presence of Jesus painfully, slowly, step by step by step. You can think of the bustling that's happening at a banquet with people who are coming to see Jesus. Jesus is popular at this point. There are no doubt plenty of people in the room. There's no doubt other Pharisees, other scribes, other spiritual leaders who've come to eat and to examine Jesus. But here in the midst of this story, Luke for us pulls our eyes away from the Pharisee, pulls our eyes even away from Jesus so that we would have our singular focus on this woman. Every single verb in this story pertains to Jesus. Everything she does has its relationship to Jesus. Look at verse 38. When she learned he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment, 38, and standing behind him at his feet. When, a, when these uh, folks would be invited to a banquet, people of stature and significance would be invited to the table to eat, and they would lay on their left side, and they would eat with their right hand. So his legs, as it were, would be out behind him as he would recline at the table with others who are around the table. But this woman is not at the table. She's outside the circle. She's standing behind him at his feet. Here's the next verb. She's weeping. It's a word that's used to describe rain showers. It's not the fake weeping you see on the commercials. <laughs> It's all out weeping. It's real crying. She's shaken emotionally in the presence of Jesus. Three, she began to wet his feet with her tears. How much crying do you think you have to do to wet somebody's feet with your tears? That's the amount that she is overwhelmed emotionally. She's crying so hard that the tears fall from her face on to the feet of Christ. And she wipes them with the hair of her head, which in this culture is at best immodest, if not outright offensive for a woman to do this. 
So she's standing, she's weeping, she's wetting his feet, she's wiping them with, her, with the hair of her head, and she's kissing his feet. A posture of profound reverence, a testimony of extreme value of how important Jesus is to her, that she would lay hold of his feet and weep and wipe them with the hair of her head. Finally, she's anointing them with the ointment. So each verb, doesn't that, don't you feel the, the patience with which Luke uh, summarizes what is going on? It's as if everything goes into slow-mo. And we're watching how engaged this woman is in the presence of Jesus. Weeping, wetting, drying, wiping, anointing. See, for this woman, no one else in the room matters except Jesus. Do you feel that? It doesn't matter what people are saying. It doesn't matter what people are thinking. It doesn't matter what they're eating. It doesn't matter how she got there. It doesn't matter her reputation. It doesn't matter any of those things. She's totally immersed, totally emotionally engaged with the person of Jesus Christ. So while this cascade of emotion, this cascade of intentional energy toward Jesus is, is out in front of us in the middle of this dinner party, you've got to agree that this, is, this feels a little odd, right? If you've ever been in the context with somebody who isn't reading the room emotionally as in, and is in their own world, how do you feel? You feel awkward. You feel like, I'm not sure what's happening right now. And you can feel the narrative, but you can feel how weird this dinner party just got, can't you? This, but get yourself together, woman. What is going on right now? We're just here to eat. So this woman, a well-known sinner, has come to seek out Jesus and has displayed profound emotional intensity Engaged, perhaps in the most emotional, vulnerable, uh, genuine, reverent expression of worship of Jesus that we've seen thus far in the story of Luke, right? The closest thing we've had up to this point in the story of Luke is Jesus falling down, grabbing, or I'm sorry, Peter falling down, grabbing Jesus' feet and saying, Lord, go away, I'm a sinner. Now, this woman hasn't said a word up to this point, but she provides something to talk about. Agreed? that this is something that we probably need to pay attention to that's happening in the room. And Jesus is going to take this encounter, this uh, display, and use it to teach us a lesson. Verse 39. The way he does it, and the way Luke does it, is to invite us into the inner thinking, the inner perspective of the Pharisee. Because if you think to yourself, you, I mean, this is what's beautiful about the Bible. Uh, Luke uh, invites all of us into, you would be thinking of all sorts of things, wouldn't you? And you encounter a woman like this at the dinner table sitting alone, sitting away from everybody else, weeping uncontrollably, her hair's down, it's wet, it's ugly, it's ugly. she's got the ugly cry on, everything, wiping, wiping feet with her hair, she's so engaged in Jesus, and you've got to be thinking all sorts of things. And the Bible's great because the Bible invites you into the innermost thoughts of the Pharisee who's in the room. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? It's so great that Luke goes, let me tell you what the Pharisee was thinking at this point. Verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee, who had invited him, and by extension, not her, right? See, this woman heard about Jesus, wasn't invited. This woman knew Jesus was in the house of the Pharisee, and she came of her own free will. She came of her own volition to the dinner party. The Pharisee invited Jesus, but it just so happens there are people who follow Jesus, who've had an experience with Jesus, who are acting a lot different than the Pharisee is. So when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, what is this? Well, the emotional outburst of the woman. He said what? To himself. He said, me, myself, and I need to have a talk. He said to himself, now up to this point in the book of Luke, we've had Pharisees, scribes, religious leaders uh, speak to themselves. The most recent one was back when the paralytic was let down through the uh, roof and the Pharisees and the scribes and the Pharisees said to themselves, who is this that forgives sins? 
Well, anytime Pharisees start thinking, it's a, it's a key point for us in 2023 to pay attention to what they're thinking so that we can understand what is an improper way to, un, to have a theological framework. Would you agree that we'd rather have Jesus' theological framework than the Pharisees' theological framework? Will you grant me that? Okay, so, so let's start there. Let's see what this Pharisee's theological framework is. And he does it uh, by giving us his innermost thoughts. This man said to himself, if this man were a prophet, now where does he start? The way he starts this whole thing with this woman weeping behind Jesus at his feet is to attack the person of Jesus. Isn't that fascinating? The Greek construction is such that it's a, it's a condition. You see how the word starts with if? But it's a condition with a presumed conclusion already. So it's, it's basically like this. If this man were a prophet, and he clearly is by what I'm seeing going on in this moment, so right from the beginning, the Pharisee who's invited Jesus to have a conversation with him has discounted the fact that Jesus is clearly not a prophet by what he's seeing in this moment. He's clearly not a prophet because of the experience that I am seeing play out right in front of me. So if this man were a prophet, he number one, what does a prophet do? He would know who and what sort of woman this is. See, the Pharisees function by giving us in and out categories. That's how their, their worldview works. We fast. Jesus eats. Jesus is out. Lepers are out. They don't get to come in. They're out. We're in, they're out. We're godly, they're not. We're righteous, they're not. And the Pharisee believes right from the beginning that if Jesus were a prophet, he would know both who she is and what sort of person she is. He'd know her background, he'd know her story, he'd know her reputation. He'd know, as Luke has just told us, that she's a sinner. And probably not one of the acceptable kinds, right? Not, oh, we all have ways in which we stumble. This person is an egregious sinner. For somebody to say what sort of woman she is is filled with ambiguity, complexity, and filled with condemnation, is it not? Not only that, he would know what, who and what sort of woman this is, who is what? Touching him. What does that say about prophets in the Pharisees' mindset? Prophets don't spend time with people like that. Prophets don't even touch people like that. Prophets are too holy to be around people like that. Prophets have nothing to do with people like that. They're welcome at a dinner party held by the Pharisees, but prophets don't spend time with women with those kind of stories, with women with that kind of reputation, with women who are that kind of woman. For, he goes on, she is a what? She's a sinner. Now, isn't it interesting that Luke has told us that, and now the Pharisee has told us that. Both Luke and the Pharisee agree, don't they? She's a sinner. Is anybody confused as to who this woman is at this point? She's got a reputation. She's got a background. She's got a, a story that causes everybody to know who she is. She's got a reputation. Both Luke calls her a sinner, and the Pharisee calls her a sinner. Now, you ready? Verse 40. This is incredible. This is just, let's just take a minute, take a deep breath. This is awesome. And Jesus answering. He was just talking to himself. I didn't say anything about her. I didn't say anything about you, Jesus. But I've got an inner dialogue happening. I've got an inner dialogue that betrays the kind of theological grid in which I evaluate life. And Luke is so like, I would have like nine or ten verses here, but Luke just goes, Jesus answers him. What does Luke tell us? Is Jesus a prophet? He's at least a prophet, if he can read minds. Maybe. 
we can at least admit that when Jesus answers the very thoughts of this man's heart, that he's at least at the very bottom, at least a prophet, which means he knows everything that's going on in the mind and heart of the Pharisee, and he knows everything that's going on in the mind and heart of the woman. Amen? There's no lack of clarity when it comes to Jesus. Jesus knows what you are thinking about. Jesus knows what I am thinking about. He knows what everybody is thinking about, which makes his conversation with us last week about the objective validity of John's ministry and the objective critique of that generation so important because Jesus is now about to give us an objective assessment of what lives in the hearts and minds of people. And Jesus, answering him, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. I mean, can't you just feel Jesus putting the bullets in the clip? I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. Verse 41. Now Jesus is about to do something. When Jesus tells stories, we're in trouble, aren't we? And this is what Jesus is going to do. Jesus is going to tell a story. And he's going to tell the Pharisee a story. So let's see the story that he tells the Pharisee. Because if Jesus' objective definitions matter then we need to wrestle with why are we introduced to the Pharisees' definition of life, right? We've got to ask that question to ourselves. Why is it that Luke includes the Pharisees' way of looking at life? We don't really know much about who the woman is or what her motivations are till the end of this story, but right at the beginning, Luke makes sure we know there's a way of looking at life that a Pharisee has of people who are in and people who are out, people who are allowed to touch me and people who are not. And now Jesus is going to give us a story to give his objective assessment of the situation. Look at verse 41. A certain moneylender had two debtors. This is a two-verse story. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Now a denarii is what you would make as a day laborer. So 50 denarii is about two and a half months of work. 500 denarii is a little over two years of work. So right from the beginning, we have a moneylender and we have two debtors. Two debtors who are in relationship with a moneylender. Both debtors owe the moneylender. Verse 42, when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now often in the Bible, when you deal with the idea of sin and sin against God, it's put in the context of an, Ill, of a, uh, <clears throat> sorry, of an economic illustration. You have that in the prodigal, the parable son that we'll get in several weeks, like 2027 in Luke 15. Uh, you have that in the Matthew chapter 18 with the parable of the unmerciful servant. You remember that story? If you don't, you can go read that later today, Matthew chapter 18. We have it in places like Colossians 2. Colossians 2, that Jesus has canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So often, when the Bible describes sin, it puts it in the context of an economic illustration so that we would understand the idea of debt and forgiveness. Both of those would, be, would work together. And it's a lot easier to understand that in the context of the economy. Well, Jesus gives us an economic illustration letting us know there's two people who both have a relationship with a moneylender. One guy owes 50, one guy owes 500. But there are several things about this two-verse story that I want you to see. Number one is that both debtors have an inability to pay. It doesn't tell us anything about the relative situation of the debtors' lives. It doesn't tell us how they got there. It doesn't tell us why they borrowed. It doesn't tell us the kind of situation they're in in their life. All we know is that the debtors... Sorry. All we know is that both the debtors are equal in this illustration. Why? Because neither debtor can pay, right? They're both helpless. Number two, their, their debt isn't compared to one another. I mean, it's probably good to, it, would you rather owe $1,000 or $10,000? I'd rather owe $1,000, right? There's not even an examination of uh, the relative tenfold difference in the amounts that they owe, because that's not really the point of the parable. There's no comparative value. The point of the parable is not owe less money rather than owe more money. That's not really the point. Third, the moneylender. We get zero information about the moneylender. 
There's no background, there's no understanding, there's no character displayed by the moneylender. All we have is really the moneylender's choice to willingly forgive the debts. So that can't be the point of the illustration. Well, what's the point of the illustration for this Pharisee? And the point really shows up in what Jesus asks at the end of the story. Look at what he says right at the end in verse 42. He asks a perception question. He asks really an imagination question. You remember when uh, David sins with Bathsheba and Nathan the prophet comes to talk to him. And Nathan the prophet doesn't outright tell David that he has sinned. What does he do? He tells David a story. He tells David a story about a king who had massive amounts of wealth, massive amounts of sheep, and about one guy who had one very little bitty lamb that was very precious to himself. And he tells the story of the king who had a visitor who says, I'm not going to take my sheep to provide for this visitor who comes to my kingdom. I'm going to take the one sheep of that individual. And by the end of the story, it's brilliant storytelling. It's an incredible, I don't even know how prophets do such great storytelling. But by the end of the story, David is hot. He is so mad that Nathan will come and weave this story in front of him because it captures David's attention and it captures his emotions. He's so invested in the story. He says, who is the man who has done that? And Nathan, if you know the story, turns to David and goes, you're the man. So by the end of this parable, Jesus is inviting the Pharisee to consider his theological framework on life. And he invites him to do that through a story. And then, by the end of the story that he tells of canceling of debt, he asks Simon, Simon, how do you think these individuals feel? Put yourself in their place. Part Imagine yourself in this story, Simon. Which one do you think will love him more. What's going to happen, Simon, in their heart? What kind of response are they going to have to a moneylender who forgives their sins? Verse 43, Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. Bingo. Way to go, Simon. You're tracking. Amen? Would you all say the same thing? I think we'd all say the same thing. The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? Oh, I love that. Isn't that good? Just go back up with me in the passage. Um, look back up at 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, and then Jesus asks almost the identical question here in 44. Do you see this woman? Well, yeah, he sees her. He sees her reputation. He sees her story. He sees that she's a sinner. He sees that she's doing something incredibly uncomfortable at my dinner party. He sees that she shouldn't be touching Jesus. He sees that Jesus isn't a prophet. He sees all of these sorts of things about this woman. But when Jesus asks that question... We have to presume that Simon doesn't see what he is supposed to see. Amen? Amen? He doesn't see something incredibly important about what this woman is doing. In one sense, he sees her. He sees her as a sinner, but he doesn't see her the way Jesus sees her. So Jesus invites Simon to reflect on what he sees. Simon is blind to what her actions mean. He's blind to what this woman is saying through what she is doing. He can't see it and he can't understand it. And now Jesus is going to apply the illustration. Look at 44. Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. These are, what Jesus is going to describe here are basic acts of hospitality when someone comes into your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. 45, you gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. You didn't care about me. You didn't show me basic respect. You didn't greet me. 
You didn't value me whatsoever. And you're the perfect contrast to what this woman is doing. 47, therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Let me ask you, why does Jesus tell him that? Why does Jesus make sure that the Pharisee knows that her sins are forgiven? Because one of the problems with a Pharisee and the way they look at life is a Pharisee makes improper emphases with their theology. See, a Pharisee uh, misrepresents God by heightening certain truths and minimizing others. So a Pharisee believes that God is holy. A Pharisee believes that God is righteous. A Pharisee believes that no man can see God and live. A Pharisee believes in the passages in the Bible that say, be holy as I am holy. But the Pharisee has a tendency to neglect certain truths about God. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. The Pharisee misses that his mercy is over all that he has made. The Pharisee forgets Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against the Lord, against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit is no deceit. See, the Pharisee's gospel goes like this. God is holy, I am not, so I need to do better. God is holy and righteous, and I am not, so I need to try harder. I need to work more. And not only that, so do they. And the Pharisees' gospel provides no pathway to redemption, no pathway to forgiveness except for himself because of how he views himself. I can invite Jesus to dinner, but this woman is not welcome. This woman has no part at the table with me. She's not welcome to talk to Jesus the way I am welcome to talk to Jesus. And the danger of a Pharisee's theology is that he hasn't really exalted God. Do you know that? A Pharisee hasn't really done that. A Pharisee has misrepresented God. A Pharisee has painted a picture of a kind of God who will welcome no one, who will receive no one unless they live up to the standard of the Pharisee. Ultimately, what a Pharisee does is misrepresent God's heart. And that's a problem. That's a problem to Jesus. That's why Jesus is frustrating to a Pharisee. It can't be that you're willing to allow that kind of woman into your presence. It can't be, Jesus, that you can tell me that that kind of person can be forgiven. You don't know her reputation. You don't know what she's done. You don't know the kind of woman she is in our city. How dare you say that she can be forgiven? How dare that she is welcome to this table? How dare you accept someone like that? It can't be that God can just forgive. Don't you know the standards? Don't you know the holiness of God? Don't you know his righteousness? Don't you know what God expects? That's why Jesus says to him, I tell you, her sins, which are many. Isn't that good? Luke's told us he's a sinner. The Pharisee has told us he's a sinner. 
What did Jesus just call her? He just called her a sinner. I'm telling you, her sins, which are many, are what? Forgiven. They are many, and they are forgiven. See, a lot of us think that when Jesus knows who we really are, he wouldn't accept us. A lot of us think that Jesus has theology like the Pharisee. Don't we? See, a lot of us didn't grow up with this kind of Jesus. A lot of us came to this knowledge of Jesus later in our lives. A lot of us have lived with Pharisee theology for decades and have never heard that Jesus simultaneously knows every single thing you've thought, you've said, you've done your entire life, and at the very same time covers it all with forgiveness. Forty-seven. For she loved much. Now, the issue is not that she loved and got forgiven. The issue, because of how the Greek works in Luke's uh, story, is that her expression of that forgiveness resulted in love. Right? And really, that's the whole point of the story. I mean, you can feel that up to this point. There's one person who grasps the amount in which they have the amount. I'm sorry. I'll say it again. Edit that out. There's one person who grasps the massive forgiveness that they have received and one person who doesn't. There's one person who's emotionally stunted, who can't freely express their thanksgiving to Jesus because they don't believe they've been forgiven that much. For she loved much, but he who's forgiven little loves, loves little. See, this woman shows us that all of our response, our worship, our service, our faithfulness to Jesus should flow from the most central, significant identity that Jesus gives us, which is forgiven sinner. Now, fellas, let me talk to you just for a minute. Is there any tenderness in your heart toward Jesus? Or are you okay with being emotionally reserved when it comes to Jesus? I mean, are you willing to sing because of what Jesus has done for you? I mean sing. I mean sing loud. I mean sing like your kids hear it. Or is it cool to be emotionally reserved when it comes to Jesus? This shows me that I've got room to grow when it comes to my emotional engagement because of my forgiveness of sins. This shows me that I'm not as recklessly invested in my worship of Jesus as I ought to be. Because this woman either has to totally not care what people think, or she's so captured by the fact that Jesus has forgiven sins that she's okay being misunderstood. She's okay being looked sideways at. She's okay being so captured by Jesus that the opinions of others fall away around her intentional focus on who he is. Now, that's pretty good so far. You feel like you should just shut the book right there and go, amen. But there's three more verses. You okay? We ain't got plenty of time. We're here till what, 1230? <laughs> don't miss this. Just in the next few minutes, please, please tune in here. I, I don't want you to miss why this next section here, because Jesus has totally dismantled the Pharisees' theology. Amen? We, we, we look at that and we go, man, I need to correct some of the ways in which I look at life and I look at Jesus, I look at my past, I look at my reputation. But up to this point in the story, Jesus has not said a single word to the woman. He's used her as an illustration to dismantle the Pharisees' mindset, but he hasn't said anything to her. And what happens next is so important for the story because this woman's actions are easily misunderstood, right? Everybody is wondering, what is she doing? This doesn't make sense. This is uncomfortable. She is crying a lot. I don't want to stay. Verse 48. And he said to her, the same thing he says to the Pharisee, your sins are forgiven. This woman 
who all through this passage and all through her life has been haunted by her reputation in the eyes of the, of the Pharisees, of the people in her community, of those who know her name, who know what she does for a living, who all look sideways at her and go, she's a sinner, she's not welcome, she's got a background, you don't know what kind of woman she is. Jesus turns to her in the middle of a dinner party and looks her right in the eye and says to her, you look at me now. Your sins are forgiven. Amen? Jesus looks her in the eye, which means it doesn't matter what the Pharisee has to say about her anymore, does it? Amen? It doesn't matter what her reputation is in the, in the city anymore. Because in the middle of this dinner party where people are uncertain and questioning and uh, trying to examine what's going on, is this appropriate or not? I'm not sure. Does she love Jesus? Maybe. But man, this is weird. Jesus looks her in the eye and says, your sins are forgiven. Which means Jesus' word is more powerful than any reputation you have because of the things that you have said, done, or thought. Jesus' word is more powerful. What he says about me matters the most. It doesn't matter what the Pharisees say about me anymore because Jesus has said my sins are forgiven. Amen? Jesus has said it. It's done. 49. Then those who were at the table <laughs> began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? What's the issue? The issue is the identity of Jesus. That's the whole point of the story. Is he a prophet? No. He declares by his own will to forgive sins. So that this woman knows, that everybody at the dinner party knows, there is no more powerful word over your life, over the reputation that you carry with you. There's no greater assessment of your personal identity and how you view yourself as forgiven sinner. A lot of people like to think they're good people and bad people. We want to be with the good people because the good people get saved, go to heaven. Bad people, they go to hell for sure. But that's not the way to look at life. That's not the way Jesus looks at life. Jesus says there's sinners and forgiven ones. That's it. There's sinners and forgiven sinners. Which one are you? Because this explodes, this destroys. Jesus is good at destroying dinner parties, and that's what he does here. Because everybody asks, wait a minute. Who is this who forgives sins? Verse 50, and this is awesome. He said to the woman, how does this woman leave? She leaves with a brand new reputation that's stronger than anything she's ever said, ever done, or anybody's ever thought about her, that Jesus has forgiven her. And verse 50, what he said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. You have put your faith and your trust in me and what I say about you is the final word, which means you can get up from this dinner party in the midst of people who don't understand you, in the midst of people who want to hold you to the reputation that you used to have and you can walk out of this dinner party free and at peace with God because of what I have said about you. Nobody's going to say amen. amen. You hear me? Do you need that? I need that. That it doesn't matter what anybody says or has thought about me. But the last word in my life is that Jesus looks me in the eye and says, you have been forgiven. And now you get up and you live your life in peace because you know that in Jesus you have peace with God. So the text ends in such a way where we know it is impossible to be ambivalent about Jesus. You are either a Pharisee building your life on some kind of theology about who God accepts and who doesn't, or you come in humble, worshipful, reverent, reckless, self-abasing worship of Jesus Christ because of what he has done for you. Period. So I'm going to call Jared and the band up, and like I want... If you've never heard that before, if you never heard that Jesus forgives sins and that his word has more to say about your reputation, about your past, about your sin struggle as recent as last night, then we're going to have people down front right here that would love to pray with you. 
who would love to take you by the hands and pray that you might know, maybe for the first time, that you have been forgiven by Jesus Christ. Because of your faith in what he has done for you. That's the beauty of the economic illustration that Jesus gives here. Do you know that? The reason Jesus can say your sins are forgiven. Debt doesn't go away. Do you know that? It has to be forgiven. God doesn't just wave his hand over sin and go, ah, it's done. Someone's got to pay. And the reason Jesus can say your sins are forgiven is that he pays. And he counts up every single one just like he did with that woman. He says, I know there are many, but I'm going to take the penalty on the cross for that sin so that she might know forgiveness, freedom, and peace. So, Father, we pause as we prepare our hearts to respond to you in singing. Father, if there's somebody here today who's never heard that they can be freed from the reputation, they can be freed from their sins, they can be freed from their past and the things that they think and the things that they have done, Father, I pray this morning would be the day of salvation for them. I pray that they would come forward and receive uh, forgiveness, that they would put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ. So, Father, we love you. We sing to you. Father, may our hearts respond like this woman does, in thankfulness, in worship, in recognition of the great cost of what it cost you to save us from our sins. It's in Jesus' name, amen.